Welcome to People and Profit and a special focus on all things energy. I'm Kate Moody. Coming up, do American energy giants stand to benefit from the global energy crisis? And how will the booming interest in U.S. natural gas projects impact climate change policy? Germany installs the first of many LNG terminals as it seeks an alternative to Russian natural gas. Our correspondents look at the new infrastructure and what comes next. And Europe's rush for new energy suppliers has left some emerging markets in the dark. We look at why countries like Bangladesh are struggling to keep their lights on. Since it began selling liquefied natural gas in 2016, the United States has become the world's biggest exporter. Demand is now even higher as the EU and others try to reduce their dependence on Russian gas. U.S. providers have surpassed a commitment by President Joe Biden to send 15 billion cubic meters of LNG to Europe this year. Three new liquefied natural gas projects are under construction along the U.S. Gulf Coast. Those are the sites marked in orange on our map there. They're set to be fully operational by 2025. The infrastructure will boost the country's export capacity by some 40 percent. Let's speak to Clark Williams Derry, analyst at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Thanks for joining us today. Tell us, first of all, what you've observed for American natural gas producers over the past few months. Is there an increase in the number of projects and indeed permits that are being issued? Well, so natural gas prices in the U.S. have been rising uh, over the past year, and in particularly since the, uh, the start of the Ukraine invasion. And that's largely because of an increase in exports in the U.S. Uh, and so what we've been seeing is high prices initially seem to be uh, encouraging U.S. gas producers to increase drilling to produce more. But that has sort of reached its limit. Uh, uh, across the oil and gas industry, we started seeing sort of a, like, I guess, sort of, sort of a leveling out in drilling activity uh, in most of the major shale basins. Uh, that has led to sort of, a, I would almost think of a, sort of a slowdown in the, in the pace of increase in production, which is kind of ironic. I mean, with high prices, it used to be, you know, prior to the pandemic, that uh, any sort of in temporary price blip would uh, encourage more production. But really, we, what we've seen is high prices here in the U.S. and across the globe uh, for gas and for oil. And uh, but we haven't seen a surge in new production. What about for American oil producers? It's, uh, it's sort of a similar situation. High prices in global markets for, for oil, um, high U.S. prices for oil, high prices for refined products in the, in the you know, prior to the pandemic, the shale industry was going gangbusters. It was producing more and more. The problem was that from a financial perspective, this production boom was a financial bust. Um, and you know, oil and gas companies were producing tremendous amounts of oil and gas, but they were not producing cash because fracking, drilling for oil in the U.S. is actually a very expensive, capital-intensive process. During COVID, of course, U.S. oil prices went negative. Demand was in the uh, in uh, was low, uh, and uh, you know there was not a lot of incentive to drill, and so drilling activity went way down. We've seen a steady recovery over the past two years in drilling levels, uh, but the reality is that you know it, it, that we're not growing production as fast as we did prior to the pandemic, and the U.S. industry is not responding to high prices the way it did before the pandemic, uh, partially because you know. Prior to the pandemic, they, the industry saw that when it drilled, when it sort of overproduced, it pushed down prices and, uh, and, and, uh, and killed the industry's profits. 
So what, what I think is really going on here is sort of the same kind of activity in the U.S. oil industry that we see from OPEC, actually sort of some restraint in production, partially in order to keep prices high. Uh, we've seen, you know, calls for what's called capital discipline, a sort of restraint in spending in oil and gas. And the reason why is that investors who are really in control of the U.S., at least the publicly traded oil companies, they don't want to see overproduction and a price crash. I'd like to ask you about liquefied natural gas. Uh, the U.S. is providing more and more of it to Europe. What do we know about just how much it's sending over? And is there really enough infrastructure in place to sustain that elevated demand? It's a, it's a complicated story. Uh, the U.S. has been shipping more and more of its LNG, liquefied natural gas, to Europe. Uh, one of the, the features of the U.S. LNG industry is uh, what was called you know, destination flexibility. That is, in some parts of the world where, where they produce LNG, uh, there's it's sort of bilateral contracts between a seller and a buyer. Uh, but in the U.S., uh, there is, there's essentially no destination restrictions on any of the cargoes that are shipped. So when Europe started demanding more LNG, started paying higher prices, the companies that were buying U.S. LNG were happy to ship it to Europe. And that included, in some cases, Asian utilities or Asian buyers who saw it, uh, saw that it was more lucrative to sell uh, their LNG cargoes to Europe rather than the U.S. The issue here, though, is that, uh, that there is only so much LNG in the world and so much, only so much LNG that the U.S. can produce right now. And it takes years, literally years, to bring, bring a new project on, online. So even if the U.S. were to start new projects right now, it probably wouldn't mean uh, would mean that there wouldn't be more LNG getting into the market for another three or four years. American households and businesses have so far been much more insulated from the global energy crisis than Europe, for example. What changes are you seeing down the line uh, as a result of the ongoing changes in the domestic energy industry? Well, one of the things that's happening is that we are starting to see higher prices. That is, essentially, the U.S. is exporting more and more LNG, more and more of our gas, and we're importing higher prices as a result. Uh, and th that's going to probably come to a head this wintertime when consumers and in, uh, in businesses in the U.S. start to face real, uh, real pressure during the winter months when they use the most LNG in their homes. But we've already seen it in higher electricity prices. So even though the U.S. Uh, US consumers are not facing the same kind of constraints and high prices and supply limitations that you're seeing in Europe, they're still facing much higher prices than they're used to. And as a result of that, uh, I can expect that we're going to start to see some more political pressure, possibly to restrict exports from the U.S., you know, sort of save some, some of the gas for the U.S. market and, uh, and uh, just try to keep our prices in check. What does all this mean for efforts to fight climate change and switch to more sustainable energy sources? Well, one of the things we're seeing in the aftermath of the Ukraine crisis is uh, that the energy transition, transition from fossil fuels, cleaner and more reliable energy, energy sources, as it actually in some cases accelerating. That's being, it's accelerating because of the high prices of fossil fuels and in some cases for the lack of reliability, security in the fossil fuel supply. Uh, you know, Europe is certainly uh, supercharging its efforts to conserve gas uh, and to use less gas in the future. Uh, we're seeing the same kind of moves in Asia, developing Asia, where they're turning against expensive and unreliable liquefied natural gas uh, and starting to think about other ways of, of uh, powering their economic development, not with fossil fuels, but with, with, uh, with wind and solar. 
Clark Williams-Darry, thank you so much for joining us on People and Profit today. Well, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sparked a major U-turn in energy policy in Germany. To help wean itself off Russian gas, which used to arrive via pipeline, the German government has ordered the construction of six terminals to handle shipments of liquefied natural gas. Two should be up and running by the end of the year. Our correspondents Nick Spicer and Anne Maillet have been to see one of them in the North Sea. Just off the coast of Wilhelmshaven, less than a kilometer from the shore, is Germany's fastest worksite. Construction of the first floating LNG terminal is almost done. It took less than a year instead of the usual five. The floating terminal will be anchored here, and the LNG tankers will berth here, where we are, to feed the installation. From December onward, the LNG, or liquid natural gas, will arrive here, be regasified, and then injected into the national network. Between 5 and 7 billion cubic meters are expected each year, enough to help ward off a shortage of gas as Moscow cuts off most supplies. This terminal makes a big contribution to energy security. Here we can replace 20% of the natural gas Russia sent us before the crisis. That represents about 8% of what the country consumes as a whole. Parliament voted to accelerate the construction of new gas terminals. Six LNG terminals will be up and running by 2025, two of them by the end of the year. But they will be built next to national parks, such as the Vaden Sea, and their possible impact on the environment has some people concerned. Climate activists accuse the government of choosing energy security over the environment. The German government rents this floating storage and regasification terminal for 200,000 euros a day. Imagine how many households and families we could help with that money so they could equip themselves with solar panels and thermal solar collectors. But in this time of crisis, the imminent arrival of LNG in the country's energy mix should help Germany get through the winter. Europe's energy crisis is having a knock-on effect on developing economies, some of which are now struggling to buy oil and gas from their usual suppliers. Yuka Royer's here with more. Yuka, what signs are we seeing of that growing imbalance? Well, Kate, Europe sees increased imports of liquefied natural gas as key to reducing its reliance on Russian energy. LNG now accounts for 32% of the bloc's total gas imports compared with 20% last year. But global LNG production is not growing as quickly as Europe's increased appetite is hurting some developing nations that have long relied on it. Outbid by richer nations, uh, countries like India, Pakistan and Bangladesh are facing frequent power shortages. Some exporters profit from higher prices. Instead of honouring long-term contracts, they're choosing to sell on the more lucrative spot market, even if it means paying a penalty. Pakistan's state energy company even took an energy trader to court and won almost $15 million in an arbitration case. And some developing economies are now actually buying more energy from Russia. Well, the price of Russian oil has fallen as Western nations turned away. Uh, some developing countries, mostly in Asia, took advantage of the cheaper price, including India and China that together now account for more than half of Russia's oil exports by sea. Turkey doubled its imports of Russian oil over the summer. Sri Lanka, which is in the grip of a deep economic crisis, has also begun importing large quantities of oil from Russia. And Myanmar said it would join the bandwagon too. 
And meanwhile, Europe's hunt for new energy suppliers has led to some new business opportunities in some of those emerging markets. Well, Kate, Malaysia, the world's fifth largest LNG exporter, is among those seeing increase in demand. An outage at its export facility earlier this month due to a pipeline leak lifted wholesale gas prices in the Netherlands and the UK. European nations have also signed new gas deals with a host of African countries, including Algeria, Egypt, Congo and Nigeria. And it's not just gas. The continent has also boosted coal imports from countries like Indonesia and South Africa. Yukaroya, thanks so much for that. Well, that's all for now. Don't forget, you can get in touch with your comments and questions on social media. Until next time, thanks for watching.